0: Hello and welcome to The Devil's Party, a podcast in which we take the classics of Christian literature and we do something shocking to them. We read them. I am Anthony Oliveira, PhD culture critic, Dumpster Raccoon, and this week we are tackling the back half of the first book of the, uh, Revelation of John, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, if you're being super uptight about it, the book of Revelations, the apocalypse. Um... Last time we covered kind of the beginning of this book, and I purposely wanted to cleft off its first really wild image into its own kind of analysis. But I do think this will be maybe a little shorter than last time. Um, the encounter with a figure with a lot of crazy stuff going on. He's got white hair, he's got crazy glowing eyes, he's got a sword coming out of his mouth, um a really pretty empire-waisted dress, uh, and big shiny feet. Uh, (laughs) It's not hard to figure out that this is supposed to be Jesus Christ, Um, but he doesn't look a thing like Jesus, does he? Like, this is certainly not, um, this isn't even the white Jesus we've gotten used to since the Renaissance, much less the human-looking figure we are used to, although he is notably one like a son of man a phrase that actually does not have uh the apocalyptic overtones it has since uh gained until really the new testament started really using it it's uh the gospel of john used it a lot right um we saw it in the gospel of mark um but it just means he looks like a person he 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 looks like a man <laughs> like one like a son of man just means a human being um uh, but uh, the rest is pretty crazy, right? I And I tend to think of this as, like, it's Jesus with the Chaos Emeralds, right? It's supersonic Jesus. Um, it's Super Mario when he's got the star in his hand, right? Uh, let's just look at it. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Seven golden lampstands. Uh, I warned you all that we're going to be dealing with a lot of seven imagery in this. Um, This is one we don't have to really figure out because it says in verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are... The seven churches. So uh, good old Jesus gives us what this one means. It hasn't stopped a lot of people from interpreting it. Um, By the way, it's worth noting there that the word that is being rendered as angels is angelos. It is messengers. So there is a weird way that it's actually even more confusing. <laughs> like, like, are these seven angels, or are these just like the seven people who are delivering, for example, this text, or the seven people reading this text? Who are the seven angels? Um, I talked last week about the, uh, first of all, that there's no sorry, there's no Trinity in the New Testament. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of people very invested in carving out a Trinity in the New Testament. Um, and some of the texts I read this week, particularly Catholic texts, try to make the seven spirits into seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. Um like that's because that's a good you can see why they want to do that right because like god the father is in this scene god the son is in the scene is there a way to sort of really fudge the numbers to make the holy spirit be in this scene and having it be seven seven dimensions of the holy spirit is some of the work i saw done when i was prepping this week um if you went through a confirmation, you probably learned about the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that's actually one of the ways that this particular cake has been cut. It reminds me, I've been watching a lot of Sailor Moon reminds me of the God. It reminds me of the legendary silver crystal that gets split into the seven rainbow crystals. Um, a little weird, but you know, the Holy Spirit is weird. Like let's not pretend. I don't mind if it turns into seven aspects. Sure. Um, seven golden lampstands uh it's not hard to see we talked before about how this is an incredibly jewish text it's not hard to see an echo of the menorah there um the menorah that is instructed by god to be placed in um in the space of the temple right uh I actually have it in front of me right here. Make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make uh, and make its flower-like cups, blo- buds and blossoms of one piece with them. Its branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch, etc., cetera, et cetera. Like, this is a specific um, part of the ritual service, part of the the furniture of the worship space, right? And it was known to be kind of an icon of Judaism, um, even out to outsiders. For example, if you're ever in Rome, you can actually see the uh, monument built by Domitian, who you'll remember is probably the living emperor at the time this is being written, the one who has a reputation for persecuting Christians, um, Domitian actually has a monument built for his brother Titus, who actually oversaw the destruction of the temple, uh, which gives you some sense of what Domitian thought of about the Jewish people who his brother had helped destroy the temple of. Um, and if you go to that monument, you can actually see Titus smashing the menorah. Menorah just means uh, lampstand. You might be thinking, wait, don't menorahs have eight branches? Um, that's actually a hanukkiah. Uh menorah just means lampstand so a hanukkah is a specific kind of menorah uh, if you didn't know that. Um anyway, as i've said this writer is really steeped in Jewish learning as we may have as we have already talked about he may have in fact um escaped from uh, Judea after the destruction of the temple because he seems to know a lot about it. In fact, that's, this is not even the only clue he knows a lot about temple practice, even in this week's reading. The next is the description of the Son of Man. Uh, in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. Again, kind of an apocalyptic phrase. It mean, it has come to mean something like the Messiah. Um the child of man it has a great poeticness but also just means like a dude one who looks like a human clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest um a long robe the greek word that is used there um is actually only used seven it is not used anywhere else in the new testament um, and it is only used seven times in the Septuagint, the Greek word. Uh, and in each case in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of what we call the Old Testament, um, it is always referring to a priest. Uh, this is a description of a priest's robe. Um, my The translation I'm looking at right now says, across his chest. We had the great phrase, <laughs> across his paps. Uh, it's very high. There's actually some debate about how he should be depicted wearing this um i i mentioned it It sounds like kind of a regency era empire waist but actually a lot of people depict it as a sash going from over the shoulder to the waist right that cutting across his breast um and it's gold this sounds like a description specifically of a priest on the day of atonement in a fresh white robe um Then we get the description of the outfit. His head and his hair were white—or it's not the outfit, his look. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. The translation there—the word used there is something like furnace copper— Uh, We don't... (laughs) You can render that however you want to. Uh, Refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Like the sound of, like, uh, Niagara Falls is what that means, right? Um, In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining with full force. What is up with this? Well, I mean the temptation is to immediately go into, like, the footnotes and to figure out what it is that it's citing. And it is indeed citing quite a network of um uh, Jewish texts. But without even doing that, we can kind of figure out, like, the point is power, right? The point is... um Actually, one of the great readers of this is Gerard Tolkien, right? It's a Gandalf the White situation. It is the being returned at full force. Um, And there is a way, I was reading a commentary who was thinking about um, a passage I actually use in my own book. At the end of Lord of the Rings, Frodo sees Gandalf. He says, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to become untrue? And there is kind of a way that's what this is doing, right? He says, the tip-off that this is Jesus is when he says, I am the one who was dead and am alive, right? Um, it is clearly supposed to be Jesus, the one who has the keys of Hades, the one who has undone death. But the citation is um, decidedly not Christian. It is from the book principally of Daniel, Um it is also citing Zechariah. It is casually citing Isaiah with the sword in the mouth. Um, Isaiah says that in, in the wo- in the mouth of a prophet, uh, the word of God is like a sword, right? It's an image. I mean, that's an easy poetic image to unpack, even if it is, as we must get used to when dealing with revelations, something being both visually the craziest thing you've ever heard of, but poetically quite astute and lovely, I think. Um Ezekiel is also in the mix. I want to give you the full citation from Daniel because it is extremely important for uh, reading the book of Revelations. Um, And it is, in fact, why I wanted to do this as a separate episode from last week. Uh, The book of Daniel is weird. Um, It ostensibly tells the story of a Jewish... um, kid. He seems kind of young at the beginning of the story. He, anyway, he's part of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, if you don't know, Babylon conquers um, the kingdom of Judea in the south, and its strategy for effecting a genocide of that region is a cultural genocide. It takes captive um, the aristocratic class, and makes them serve in the court of, here, the King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, And Daniel serves in that court quite uncomfortably, as his unwillingness to part with his Jewishness makes him the target of these persecutions. However, in the back half of the Book of Daniel... Uh, a series of prophetic visions erupt into the text, almost certainly written at a much later date as was of course the first half. But the second half seems to have been written um, under another persecution, this time, uh, the Greeks much closer to the period, about hundred and let's say 50 years ish before Jesus's time, before the Romans roll in. Um, in the aftermath of Alexander the Greats, Conquering of uh, basically much of the Mediterranean basin and beyond. Um, a quick summary of all this: Alexander the Great conquers everything. Alexander the Great burns out really fast and dies young, and his regions that are conquered fall into separate hands. Um the region that becomes Israel into the hands of the Seleucids, uh, and in the case of the composition of the book of Daniel, Antiochus IV, who is commonly called Epiphanes. um, His reign is marked by, again, an attempt to erase Jewish culture uh, and the popularity of that erasure. For example, people are somehow doing something that um, somehow reverses their circumcision, stuff like that. Against this, there is kind of a theocratic blowback uh, and revolt, the Maccabean Revolt, of which we've already talked about, kind of, because we talked about Hanukkahs. That's why uh, Hanukkah is celebrated the way it is. That is what the miracle of Hanukkah keeps track of. Um, But into this are these prophetic visions written, put into the uh, mouth, the memory of Daniel. Again, this is a strategy of a lot of apocalyptic texts. Uh, I mentioned this last week, to take someone from earlier in your history and say he foresaw all of this. So that guy living under the Babylonian captivity knew that this Greek domination would come to pass, and he knew it would end. Um, and this is how Daniel, the book of Daniel in its back half, describes the end of both the Babylonian captivity, but also, the, in the case of the fiction of the story, the Greek captivity. I'm just going to read you basically the first half of chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, not a king we know anything about, that is a made-up name, uh, (laughs) Daniel had a dream and visions of of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. The great sea is the Mediterranean, right? Um... And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So you already see what's going to happen here, right? Four terrible beasts are going to come up out of the Mediterranean and dominate that basin. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I watched, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being and a human mind was given to it. Another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three tusks in its mouth among its teeth and was told, Arise, devour many bodies. After this I watched another appear like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the visions by night a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stamping what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that preceded it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little one coming up among them to make room for it. To make room for it, three of the earlier horns were plucked up by the roots. There were eyes like human eyes in this horn, and a mouth speaking arrogantly. Um, (laughs) that's pretty wild, right? (laughs) But a lot of the matrixes, a lot of the images in there are going to come back in the Book of Revelations. Uh, For the sake of you poor baffled reader... I will tell you that for various reasons we know these to be Babylon, Medea, Persia, and the last one is Greece. That weird little horn is Antiochus IV, the one I was just telling you about, Epiphanes. Um, But it's a wild image, and a lot of this imagery will get picked up in the book of Revelations. But then this is what happens next, as actually uh, in some versions this actually switches into into poetry rather than prose. Um, As I watched thrones were set in place and an ancient one which sometimes gets written in aramaic as ancient of days took his throne this is going to sound awfully familiar to you his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool his throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire That's ezekiel um A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Now, already you're probably like, oh, how cool, right? The John of Patmos read uh, Daniel and was like, I'm just going to use this imagery for God uh, and put it on Jesus, right? Again, like, Um, While there is not much Trinitarianism really at all uh, in Revelations, it is also pretty much as high as New Testament Christology ever gets. Jesus is somehow coterminous with the Father. That would be enough. But even if you continue, I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, and here we get something like uh, a prophecy of a messiah, um, perhaps even the Maccabeans, right? I saw one like a human being, and I have a note here in Aramaic, one like a son of man, um coming with the clouds of heaven. You may recognize that image from last week. I saw one coming with the clouds. And he came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed." And Daniel then freaks out and is like, what does this mean? And an angel explains it to him. You can see there just how carefully this is open, Um, perhaps physically, perhaps not. You'll remember the poor guy is in exile on Patmos, a little rocky island. Really, it's just like 10 miles by 5 miles. Um, Does he have this memorized? Like, what's his library like is an interesting question to wonder about. Uh, as he is rewriting and remixing it for uh, this new Christian document. Um, By the way, the word face that gets translated here, countenance, uh, it only occurs four times in the New Testament. All the other times are in the Gospel of John. So if you are, "opsis" is the word, if you are a... um, John is John the Beloved. John wrote the Book of Revelations and also the Gospel of John. Truther, there's some evidence for you. Uh, It's really fantastic. Uh, I'm obsessed with just, like, how bold and weird it is. But I'm also, going back to the John thing, interested in how, like, like, imagine if this was John the Beloved and, like, this is him seeing, you know, Is what would we even call this his ex-boyfriend the person he loved in life if you are not (laughs) a subscriber to that relationship like the dearest friend he ever had is now having this full supersonic chaos emeralds moment right um there's something to me quite sad about that the extreme inhumanity of this vision um and it speaks to kind of the pathos of the next moment when, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. By the way, his right hand was full of seven stars a minute ago. There is something wonderful about the way this symbol of magnificent apotheosis and omnipotence, right? To hold seven stars in your hand um, somehow smoothly becomes this gesture of comforting, right, as he touches his shoulder. Um, do not be afraid, right? Of course, the thing that all magnificent beings say when, they, when an ever-an-angel encounters somebody in the Bible, right? Do not be afraid. Um, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and see. I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now write what you have seen, what is and what is to take place after this. And then, like, a weird footnote, honestly, (laughs) that I've already talked about. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Weirdly flattening beat there at the end. (laughs) But um, mystery usually means, like, you would never get here on your own. It's a very specific uh, word that the, the writer uses. For example, the mystery of uh the 666 right it means he has to explain it because otherwise you would never get there it's odd to use it here um like as though he was trying to shut down exactly the kind of weird uh explication i've already flagged as later writers doing um really great little description shorter one this week the thing that i think of pop culture wise for this actually most of all is cable From the X-Men, Cable also has white hair and glowing eyes, and he has one good right hand. Uh, (laughs) This is not me making that up. That actually is a specific citation that gets used, I think, during the Dan Casey years on Cable, a a book run that for some reason I read all of. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, um, there he is, Jesus, delivering the message. Next week, we kick off The Letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor um, just over the water from poor John stuck on Patmos the ring of cities there uh I am going to now tackle the mailbag over on Patreon, of which there were quite a few comments. If you want to check that out, if you want to support this podcast, hop on over to patreon.com slash Koopa, M-E-A-K-O-O-P-A. It's a bad Super Mario and Latin Christian joke. Uh, Or just Google Anthony Oliveira and you will find the Patreon That way, next week, the seven churches of Asia. Thank you so much. Be brave enough to be kind. Bye-bye, everybody.